this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode. I have Tom Jessup, the head of Fidelity Digital Assets, on the show with us today. This is a special show and a great show. Tom and I talked about what Fidelity has been building over there for the last few years. We talk about the actual time this all started, which was around circa 2014 and 15. Fidelity and the team have also spent a lot of time writing about the history of digital assets and about crypto, going back to DigiCash and HashCash. So there's a lot of understanding of the rich history and the the work that has gone into to actually getting us to this point today. And so we talked about their their services for custody and for uh, other trading uh, transactions. And we talked about the rationale and kind of the, the roadmap, if you will, for you know going from beyond Bitcoin to other potential crypto assets, which they're taking a look at right now. We talked a little bit about the possibilities and the feasibilities of Bitcoin going to zero uh, because some family offices and institutional investors still think that there is a a probability of that happening, a possibility of that happening. So this is a great conversation. You're really going to enjoy it. And I think you're going to learn a lot from Tom and from what they're doing over at Fidelity. So remember, nothing on Base Layer is investment advice. So please do your own research. And on the flip side, you're going to hear the conversation with Tom. Enjoy. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. It is my pleasure to have Tom Jessup, the head of Fidelity Digital Assets, with us. If you don't know what Fidelity Digital Assets is, uh, this is going to be an enlightening moment for you because this team and this group uh, has been working on a solution to a big problem in custody for institutional investors. Tom has years of experience prior in institutional uh, asset management at, at places like Goldman. Um, and so, Tom, if you could you know, tell us a little bit more about yourself uh, tell us about Fidelity Digital Assets and tell us uh, kind of what you're building there. Great. Thanks for having me today, David. Yeah, so I joined Fidelity about 18 months ago. I'd done a brief stint at an enterprise blockchain startup called Chain. And prior to that, 17 years at Goldman Sachs, where a lot of my focus was on uh, investing in fintech companies and doing, call it, native business development, uh, mostly in the institutional finance space. So really enjoyed that. And, and you know, I've always really lived my career at the intersection of finance and technology. And actually, when I was at GS, I had gotten interested in Bitcoin and blockchain and had, had done some, some work there, which I'm happy to talk about. But when I came to Fidelity 18 months ago, it was a really wonderful opportunity for me to take some of my, uh, my expertise, but also my passion and interest in this space and apply it to uh, work that was already in progress at Fidelity and had been in progress for many years, really taking a lot of basic research we've been doing in the space and assembling that into a business, which we now call Fidelity Digital Assets. So one of the things that we like to do on the show is talk about not necessarily the when Bitcoin, but the why. And so, you know, the next question is kind of why in your discovery of Bitcoin and blockchain, what about the underpinning technology? What about the innovation really struck you and said, this is where I want to spend you know, a, a good amount of my time professionally? Yeah. So it was probably 2014 and I had read an article that someone had sent me. Ironically, it was a scanned article from a magazine, which seems kind of, kind of interesting 
uh, given the subject matter. But my background is I was a uh, economics major undergrad. I flirted with being a philosophy major until my dad asked me to do something slightly more commercial with my life. And so when I read this article and did a b- bit more research in the space, I thought, it, you know, Bitcoin at that time and the underlying blockchain was, you know, like a liberal arts uh, uh, dream subject because it had equal parts economics, political theory, game theory, uh, behavioral aspects. And so I was just attracted to the subject matter uh, more from an intellectual standpoint. But the more that I uh, learned about Bitcoin and the blockchain, really started to think about the potential implications for for finance. Not so much the idea that uh, you would potentially disintermediate uh, financial institutions or fundamentally refactor how they work, but that the technology itself could be a force multiplier or an enabler in a number of domains. One, financial inclusion. Uh, two, uh, thinking about uh, the cost structure of finance, particularly institutional finance, where you know we can trade something in microseconds at very low cost, but it still takes days and capital uh, and reconciliation and other things to settle that transaction. And so this whole idea that uh, this innovation could be applied across a broad set of domains and, and really attack a number of things that can be fixed in finance or perhaps bring finance into areas that, you know, the cost structure and call it the state of the art was unable to, to take it. Right. And uh, we'll talk about the unbanked if uh, we're, we'll talk a, a little bit later about Libra. But one of their notions in the writings is, you know, working with the unbanked and having two billion daily active users, many of which are unbanked. And so this notion of how crypto and blockchain can bring those people into the system and also, you know, it's interesting you talk about, you know, kind of payments and uh, overseas transactions. Uh, you know, we recently had Wire. We had Michael Dunworth uh, from Wire on the show talking about how transactions, you know, it take three days if you were a retailer here in the States and you had a supplier in China or in India or other places around the world. And it would be, you know, about T plus three for those transactions to finally clear. And then the, the supplier would finally send those goods. Um, and so speeding up uh, delivery processes and also the kind of the uh, the costs, as you alluded to, dropping those costs on transactions down to a fraction of what they were. So really interesting. So let's learn a little bit more about digital uh, fidelity, digital uh, assets, and uh, talk about uh, what you guys have built there from a high level, institutional solutions for new asset class. Talk to us at a high level about what you guys have built, and then we'll go into the history of actually how this all came about. Yeah, so I think that the uh, kind of the, the long-term vision or kind of the guiding principle is, you know, coming back to what I said earlier, we believe that um, this technology can is effectively a new medium for assets and can facilitate financial transactions uh, that currently exist but do it better or perhaps facilitate new types of transactions. And so what we, we really want to build in FDAS or Fidelity Digital Assets, excuse me, is... Um, you know, really an institutional grade uh, platform uh, brokerage capability for all types of, of digital assets, starting at the base layer with uh, custody, also providing uh, execution services, which we can talk about, you know, as you probably know, and perhaps some of your listeners, the crypto market structure in terms of how investors interact with it is fundamentally different from the market structure that they're familiar with uh, around, you know, listed equities as an example. And so we're trying to bring, a, call it a traditional institutional paradigm to how investors interface with the market. It's incredibly important and in our you know early days of the launch, something that really resonates with customers. 
And then, you know, in terms of our growth path, it really is adding more assets. We're certainly very interested in native issuance of securities or tokenization, which I think will come in the future, but obviously something that our clients are very interested in. And then building capabilities around those assets to uh, increase the utility of them on our platform. So at some point, think about lending, think about margin, other things that are artifacts of traditional finance that are still being developed for digital assets. Really interesting. So we'll dig into a little bit more of those pieces in a few minutes, but we're going to dig into the history because the history is rich and we'll talk about kind of the circuit date of when Abby Johnson uh, commissioned Fidelity Labs around 2014 and 15. But I want to make this a very specific point. The fact that Fidelity and the fact that I'm talking to you, Tom, Fidelity um, give or take, has about $7 trillion in assets under administration, and those numbers might be a little old, but Tom, obviously, you can give us uh, an up-to-date if you have, but the fact that we're talking to Fidelity and we're talking to Tom right now, and they've spent the years to kind of experiment with this and get a product to market for the crypto space, for the digital asset space, is something that I hope resonates with the listeners, you know, and so I want to talk more about this history. And so from your Medium post, Some of the experimentation bore insights that helped us reprioritize and select the next batch of trials, but others did not prove out as we'd hope. Regardless, we were listening to the marketplace, and specific opportunities were beginning to emerge. So again, if you can walk us back to the history, you know, five years, six years, whatever it was, talk to us a little bit about the history, and talk to us a little bit about what kind of experimentation occurred there, and what did you learn? Yeah. You know, one thing about Fidelity, which, which I learned after being here, which I think is pretty amazing, is, you know, this, this super rich history of, of innovation. As someone who was sort of entering the workplace, workplace in the 90s, you know, the advent of the web, I had seen something that even before the web, Fidelity had distributed an online trading system on three and a half inch floppy disk to customers. So even before the web existed, the company was innovating in things like online trading. And so there, there's this incredible history of innovation. And I think when we start thinking about Bitcoin and blockchain, uh, it really is a continuation of that legacy. And it really started around 2014. And as I understand it, there was a discussion among senior management about the fluidity of finance or how to make finance more fluid. There was a discussion around blockchain. And the, the organization started doing some basic research in something called the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. And this is an area of the firm where, you know, currently, as an example, the organization is looking at AR, VR, artificial intelligence, other types of things, you know, really looking at basic research without perhaps a commercial objective in mind. And I think back in 2014, I think that was really the spirit with which the organization dug into the blockchain. And for me, what was fascinating, I was at Goldman at the time, and I personally was beginning my journey. And a couple of months later, I started making investments in the space. And I felt like, you know, I was one of the few people on Wall Street at the time who uh, was focused on it. There wasn't this upswell of collaboration and, and engagement amongst financial institutions. To think at that time that, you know, Fidelity was mining Bitcoin and running nodes of the blockchain network and hiring people uh, who had, you know, early experience in the space, to me was really mind boggling. And when you think about Fidelity Digital Assets, you know, we didn't just kind of decide a year ago we wanted to build this business. A lot of the core components and the thinking and the expertise uh, had really been developed over the prior four plus years. And so, you know, we experimented with things like mining, as an example. We experimented with uh, pilots in the cafeteria allowing employees to buy things with Bitcoin. You know, you've heard about the, uh, the Bitcoin pizza and Lord knows what that cost in present value terms. 
Uh, you know, we have the Bitcoin bagel. You know, we have pe people buying stuff in the cafeteria. You know, it's the most expensive bagel perhaps they ever purchased. And so we were all of this rich experimentation, all the while that investors and others were getting more sophisticated about the technology and the assets and their role in finance. You know, those things converged at a point. You know, last year, actually early seventeen, where we felt it was time to uh, to take this learning and push it out commercially. And I think that's perhaps what really distinguishes the story here is that we've been active in the space and spending money on the space for several years. Let that resonate with people. I want that to be a hard pause and I want people to realize that this was not a reaction to Bitcoin prices. This was not a reaction to 2017 where the all-time high of 21000 was hit. This was going on prior to that. And I think that's really an important you know, note that people need to really let that sink in, that this was something that the business, the company itself, was investigating years prior to that. And so I love that. I think that's a really important narrative. Um, some of the other things that you guys have written about, which I love, and giving historical context to family offices and to other institutional investors, is this history. A lot of people, I, I was funny, I was talking to a family office principal a few days ago, and I told him that Bitcoin was around for 10 years, and he actually was surprised. He said, really, it's 10 years? I said, yeah, it's 10 years. And so there's this notion that you know a lot of people don't understand the history here. And a lot of people think that this Satoshi Nakamoto person, persons, whoever you want to classify it as, um, you know, kind of came out from the financial crisis in 08, 09, and we had Bitcoin. But if you actually look at the history, and you guys have, and I love that, you know, we talk about people like David Chow and Nick Zabo, and we talk about things like DigiCash and HashCash. And so I think it's really important to continue educating institutional investors about this. And so would love to kind of hear your thoughts as you've obviously done your homework, you were investing in the space early on too. Talk to us about the history. Talk to us kind of, you know, give us a little more context. Again, you know, you talked about the history of Fidelity and the build out uh, for, you know, digital assets right now. Talk to us a little bit about the history that you guys wrote about too. I think that's really important. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, throughout technology, I guess my observation is that, you know, there's always a time and a place. And I think it just so happened after 2008 with the Bitcoin white paper, uh, it really galvanized attention in an area of technology or cryptography that had been fairly rich in terms of experimentation well back into the 90s and perhaps sooner. And so it really was this evolution. And, you know, everything that that is represented in the ecosystem today calls back to the work that was done by those individuals. And their legacy is really part of the space that we're operating in today. I actually have a slightly longer historical perspective because I was trying to think about this idea of a scarce digital asset, truly native digital money. And if you actually think about money as a technology, there really have been reasonably few innovations over time. Obviously, moving from barter to some form of fiat money, coins as an example, in, um, in this, the 600s in Turkey, I believe, to double entry bookkeeping in Renaissance Italy, this idea that you can maintain a set of ledgers that would allow you to extend credit and maintain a balance of payments between individuals. I mean, those were real innovations. And then, you know, you think about where we've gone from there. Innovations in finance have largely been messaging instructions between financial institutions, you know, whether it's a PayPal or a Venmo. At its core, you're telling folks to update ledgers. And then and then you have this really interesting and rich idea around digital assets and cryptocurrencies where these things exist solely as uh, you know artifacts on a network, they're controlled cryptographically, uh, and then you start overlaying you know uh, decentralization, trustless exchange, delivery versus payment. I mean, it feels to me like 
If you go over a longer arc of history, we may look back and say, wow, this is quite a seminal event in financial history writ large, not just a seminal event in the evolution of digital cash going back to you know, the 80s or 90s. I don't know if that makes sense, but I think there's a broader arc here that's pretty interesting. It does. And you know, when you start getting into digital assets and crypto and blockchain, you become a historian. <laughs> you start reading about the history of money if you didn't do that prior. And you start reading about distributed systems. You read about how all of this has been happening over thousands of years and there's been different iterations. You know, telling my son that at a point in time, people used to barter with kind of wheat and uh, with, you know, grains and with barley. That's how we used to pay things. And that's how, you know, pe the people used to actually pay for things and exchange goods. And so there's this been notion of the evolution of money for thousands of years. And so I love that narrative that you guys wrote about. Talk to us more about the product today. Um, so offline vaulted deep cold storage, multi-venue trade execution capabilities powered by proven order routing and matching technology and dedicated client uh, support team available 24-7. So tell us more about each one of those. Uh, we've had people like Diogo Monica from Anchorage talking about the difference between hot and cold storage. If you guys want to have a primer on that, you can also listen to that episode. But talk to us a little bit more about, you know, kind of this notion of deep cold storage, multi-venue trade execution, and obviously the uh, order routing that you guys have been able to come up with. Yeah, so on the, on the cold storage side, I mean, I think... Um so as maybe not to bore your your listeners, you know, we, we basically have a, a hot, cold, deep, cold structure. Uh, as folks probably know, the hot wallet is connected to the internet. We maintain, it's not a feature in our service. Clients cannot elect to keep assets in hot in the hot wallet. Uh, we really use it as a staging mechanism for uh, transfers that are authorized by the client. Uh, so it's really more of a liquidity management layer than it is a feature. And then we have cold storage and the deep cold storage. The difference is that in deep cold storage, we, we distribute keys uh, geographically across uh, a number of locations. And, you know, the SLAs in terms of moving things, things out of deep cold versus cold are, you know, different. And, um, you know, we built a whole set of features around that. I think most importantly, maybe abstracting away from the storage for a minute are, are the controls that institutions require. As an example, if I were to hold my, my coin personally at a, uh, a vendor, I have a username and password. I can log in, I can move coin. What, what clients actually want is they want maker checker, they want levels of approval hierarchy on their side. So when we set up the client, uh, it's never the case that a single individual at the client can uh, move those coins unilaterally. There's an escalation and approval process which needs to occur on the client side and then there's an analogous process on our side to make sure that all this movement is, uh, is double and, and triple checked. So we've built things into our procedures and our, our infrastructure, quite frankly, that, that take a page out of the work that Fidelity does with other institutions outside of crypto. We have a very large institutional business. I think we serve the needs of north of 10,000 you know, banks, broker dealers, hedge funds, and others. And so we've taken a lot of that expertise and we've applied that to this business. Uh, from a trade execution standpoint, coming back to what I mentioned earlier, you know, the challenge for traditional institutions thinking about crypto is that if they want to find best price in the market, it probably looks like them having to open up accounts at multiple exchanges, fund those accounts, and then effectively manage their cash across those different venues in terms of finding the best price. It's administratively inefficient. It's capital intensive, and it potentially introduces risk into their business process by having cash at a multitude of exchanges. Contrast that to listed equities, where you would typically have a broker who would maintain your accounts, and that broker would give you access to 
any number of exchanges or ATSs in the space for purposes of finding you best price uh, on a single screen at which you can execute, and that's effectively what we're doing. So we've leveraged some technology that powers our capital markets business. We've re repurposed that for digital assets. A client can come to Fidelity, uh, can submit an order. Uh, we have competing market makers and venues. We collect best bid and offer. We display that to the customer. They can execute at something uh, that we think over time you know, better approximates best price. And they don't need to uh, have an account or have a relationship with the source of liquidity. We act as an agent between ourselves and the client and then between ourselves and the liquidity provider. And so it's a, it's a pretty seamless experience and a paradigm that is familiar to uh, family offices and other institutions who are familiar with how other assets trade. So let's talk a little bit. Let's dig a little bit deeper in there. And, you know, this shouldn't be a surprise, but, you know, we, we obviously saw some research from Bitwise, which I've cited many times on the show before. And we saw that some of the exchanges, there's, you know, give or take 100 plus exchanges out there right now. And in their attempt to obviously try to get SEC approval, they did a lot of analysis on those exchanges for spoofs and for other you know things that were probably not legitimate and they came across about 10 or so different exchanges which they deemed like uh, I guess you can call like the bit 10 or people are calling it the bit 10 exchanges and so and talk to us you know from a counterparty perspective you know obviously with this multi-venue trade execution you know if you get a sense of you know, the exchanges and the professionalism and the institutional quality of those exchanges coming from a background at Goldman for a long time you know, what do you see out there right now in terms of the quality of exchanges that you can uh, potentially work with? I think it's evolving. We've taken the path of working with uh, OTC liquidity providers initially because we felt uh, the quality of the liquidity, or at least the size of the liquidity, was perhaps more compatible with uh, the types of clients we're going after. Uh, we put all of those liquidity providers through a fairly extensive onboarding and, and credit risk management process, which is one that we've perfected in other parts of Fidelity. So we obviously spent, to your point, spend a lot of time diligencing who we will work with. And quite frankly, I think, you know, you're seeing, you're starting to see positive evolution in the exchange space with, you know, the entrance of someone like RSX and eventually, you know, backed. But, you know, my take coming from institutional finance is that many of these exchanges were sort of the older crypto exchanges, institutional in name only. Most institutional investors would look at these exchanges, how they operate, the quality of the liquidity, and so on and so forth, and, and probably not apply the institutional moniker to them. I think that's changing quite dramatically. But as part of our, our process, we, we are taking on a fair bit of diligence and work uh, to make sure that you know the standards of these liquidity providers and potentially exchanges uh, meets minimum fidelity standards, which are a reflection of minimum institutional standards. I think that's really an important point, the amount of diligence that you guys are doing. It's, again, to to go over that data point, which may be old, but over $7 trillion in assets under administration. You guys are responsible to regulators. You have oversight. Um, you can't just kind of willy-nilly this and say, oh, we're going into digital assets and we're going into crypto. You have to go through an excruciating amount of kind of performance and diligence and underwriting on every operation. And so it might not be the fastest to market, but obviously you guys were pretty much the, the, the fastest because you had such a lead time and any amount of work you guys did. But other institutions out there have been very slow. And I think it's just important for people to listen. It's like you can't move a mountain at 50 miles an hour or 60 miles an hour. You have to let it go and it will go eventually. But there's an amazing amount of work that needs to be done to get there. So I, uh, I definitely credit you guys for doing it the right way. Um, in terms of the product also, 
so initially you guys are going with Bitcoin. If that's not, if uh, if I'm obviously you know I know that you guys are going with Bitcoin. Um, if you could maybe talk to us a little bit about why Bitcoin first and not Bitcoin and Ethereum or maybe some of the other coins. And so why Bitcoin first? And then in terms of the roadmap, what's a roadmap for the next six to twelve months in terms of adding new crypto assets or uh, some of the new innovation that you guys may, might bring to the table? Yeah, I mean, I think you know Bitcoin simply because that's where the demand is. It's obviously the largest uh, asset by market cap. I think if you actually segment the client base, I think what I, you know, for purposes of this discussion and maybe oversimplifying, I think there's a pool of dedicated digital asset or crypto funds. They only invest in digital assets. Their, their interests are spread across a wide range of, of, of coins or, or products. And then I think you have more traditional uh, investors, which I think is really where we're probably more focused right now. Uh, for whom Bitcoin is their first entree into the space, right? They've done work from an asset allocation standpoint to understand the role of something like Bitcoin in a uh, diversified portfolio, or they've developed some uh, native thesis or an absolute return tied to network metrics or other things. And so right now, you know, a lot of our focus is on how we serve the needs of those people that are starting to allocate and will allocate to Bitcoin. Whereas over time, we think they probably begin to span, expand their horizons thinking about other, other assets. So our general view is that we will continue to add assets to the platform. I think uh, we will largely do that as a function of customer demand. And I think customer demand, again, moving off of Bitcoin, I think will probably track uh, market cap uh, as you sort of move to the, um, to the other assets. And so we have plans to, I think we have, uh, you know, another three or four assets that have been approved through our business approval committee, which we will implement at some point. But, uh, you know, right now we're very focused on Bitcoin because we think that's where the demand is. In terms of risk, um, and it's interesting, I've been reading, rereading Howard Marks again. And so risk has different flavors, but majoritively speaking, an investor does not necessarily want to eat someone's lunch, especially a manager or someone else, if there's volatility oh, you know, there's a 10% drawdown, blah, blah, blah. An investor will eat someone's lunch if there's a complete capital loss. And so that is, you know, that is a major risk. And so in, in understanding kind of your kind of perception of risk in terms of the other crypto assets, is it a majority, you know, kind of liquidity risk? Is that kind of, without giving away, obviously, the secret sauce, but is, you know, liquidity risk one of the major things that you guys are looking at in terms of new assets coming to market? I mean, it's certainly something that we look at. I mean, obviously, if we are... Uh, Presenting a service institutions who, again, uh, expect a certain amount of liquidity and other things, you know, for coins that are more thinly traded, where the exchange infrastructure, the LP infrastructure is not as well developed, there is a question about, you know, can it support institutional size trading? So I think that's one part of it. But again, I just go back to this idea that, you know, we're led by our customers. And, you know, there's a, there's a reasonably, you know, if you look at the entirety of institutions interested in the space, there's a reasonably small but growing cohort that are interested in many types of digital assets. They're the native crypto funds. There's a much, much larger number of institutions who are starting to think about the space. And when they want to allocate, they're first thinking about Bitcoin. And so what we're trying to do is manage the balance between the two in a way that's very client that's very client-led. My expectation is that for many of the, the folks on the more traditional side that have been doing their work on Bitcoin, already on Bitcoin, they're probably looking at things like ETH and other assets, and we'll, we'll follow that uh, trend over time and apply the same lens that we did for Bitcoin in terms of what are minimum institutional standards, how do we support this, you know, before putting them on the platform. Got it. And that leads us to the, a, a really good segue in terms of a recent report you guys did. You did a survey 
of 411 U.S. institutional investors, among which 40% of respondents said they are going to open or they are open to future investments in digital assets in the next five years. Furthermore, almost half, 47% of the respondents said that they see a place in digital assets in their investment portfolios. Now, I know, obviously, as a fiduciary and someone that, you know, you know, there is you know, client confidentiality and we're not asking for names, but to get a sense of the type of investor, you know, there's been this narrative for the last two years, the institutions are coming, the institutions are coming almost like Paul Revere. Um, and so, you know, that is kind of stalled a little bit and we can obviously opine about the reasons for that. And one of them is because we didn't have, you know, someone like a fidelity in the market at that point in time, but without naming names, but, you know, potentially giving us a sense of the investor type, whether it's family offices, pensions, endowments, you know, what are, you know, could you give us a little more color on kind of the respondents and kind of on a kind of demographic basis? And also, why do you think it's now? What about it now? Is it because of the price accretion in Bitcoin over the last six to seven months? Is there is there other markers that you guys are hearing from them that is signaling to them, you know, why now? Yeah, so to maybe a- uh, answer the last question first, I don't think it's as a result of the price activity. You know, we um, have been talking to clients and prospecting through a good part of the crypto winter, and uh, we never saw a diminution of, of interest. I think it's the case with institutions, you know, uh, many of them themselves are fiduciaries, you know, for others, they have to do their homework, they have to understand the space, they have to develop a thesis. And I think it's taken them a while. And that's not uh, meant to be a a black mark. It's just, you know, the right thing to do to to come around to the idea of what is this thing? Why should I be interested or not? And what role does it have in my uh, investment approach? And so I think what you've seen is just given this increasingly in the public consciousness over the past couple of years, let's call it the early adopters amongst those institutions uh, getting to the point where they've done their homework and you know they're interested in in allocating and then the next question is okay this is great but can i actually access the market so that raises secondary questions about liquidity about custody etc so we think it's a very normal and healthy evolution to this point uh, we did speak to a wide range of institutions starting with family offices and rias on one end to uh, hedge funds uh, 40 act pension endowment and a couple of call it cross-sectional observations, I would say that if you put those investors on a risk-taking spectrum, putting hedge funds and perhaps family offices at the higher propensity to take risk or think about risk versus others, that's where you, you probably saw the most current interest, which makes sense. Having said that, in our client discussions, we're starting to see more interest from the more traditional investors and folks that perhaps wouldn't have that same risk tolerance on a relative basis now getting interested. I think the other thing that we've seen is that a very high correlation in the results between folks that said they were educated or very educated or knowledgeable about the space and their propensity to either uh, uh, you know purchase intent or current ownership. So we still think there's a lot of education that we need to do as an organization and as an industry or ecosystem uh, in terms of providing the types of input and information that allow uh, folks to become more conversant, uh, which only then would engender perhaps some decision to buy. And then, you know, I thought most interestingly in the results, if we, you know, we ask people, what are the reasons why you're not investing or, you know, why you, um, you may have reservations about the state space? And I think... You know, they mentioned volatility, and I'll, I'll, t- I'll talk about these in order and then come back to them. Volatility was a big issue. Lack of a track record was another issue, and then regulation was a third issue. Those were the top three reasons why folks who hadn't invested were perhaps reluctant to, and I think some of these things sort themselves out. 
I think with, as we discussed earlier, more institutional infrastructure coming into the space, whether it's Fidelity or some of the exchanges or others coming in, um, the fact that people can express differential views on the market with increasing amounts of liquidity available will mean that over time, I think volatility will dampen. You know, you've seen obviously a big run up in futures activity, all very healthy, and I think over time should should solve that problem. Lack of a track record, you know, we're 10 years in on Bitcoin. I think the way I interpret lack of a track record is really less about will this thing be around in two years, although there may still be a little bit of that. I think it's more, is there enough data, whether it's price data, network data, that I can actually look at the information and, and develop enough of a thesis to say, okay, I think I think this is the right time to invest. And then, you know, regulation is always going to be an issue. We were very encouraged by, um, I guess, the request for comment from the SEC asking you know, in, in, in broad brush terms about the application of this technology to finance, how it could be an enabler. We think that's very healthy, given that a lot of the initial engagement was around you know, the ICO bubble and enforcement actions and unregistered securities offerings, et cetera. So we think that from a regulatory standpoint, things are moving in a positive direction. So again, I think a lot of these concerns that people have, I think over time, probably sort themselves out. So let's 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 dig into there a little bit because you just brought up regulatory and we were going to talk about Libra because everyone's talking about Libra, which is such a genius thing, by the way. They've been able to get the entire ecosystem talking about them for the last two weeks. And I was just on, you know, I was on TV this morning talking about Libra. It's a little, it's getting a little too much, but you know, kudos to those guys, to David Marcus and the team over there. But you saw Maxine Waters and you saw some members of Congress um, want to bring in David Marcus and the team over there from Facebook and Libra um, to kind of talk to them a little bit more. You saw France and you saw some of the French regulators say not here, although you also saw England. I think it was Carney who said this is actually kind of interesting. So in terms of the regulatory landscape, it seems that Libra is kind of taking on the chin. Um, and so I'm curious, you know, with FA, uh, I think it was FATF that recently just came out with some oversight too. You mentioned that you're seeing, you know, obviously, you know, better things on the regulatory standpoint. But do you think that, you know, where does this go? Do we continue to see more regulation? Is more regulation good? Um, are we going to finally get to a point where we get a sense, you know, obviously Hinman kind of opined about Ethereum a while back. Do we finally get some clarity on that from, you know, kind of what you're hearing on your side of the uh, on the aisle? Are we going to get some clarity soon from the CFTC and from the SEC about kind of the, you know, the how these are all kind of classified? Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to view all this in a more abstract way, which is I think there's coming back to the education point. I mean, I think that perhaps Libra was a catalyst for legislators and perhaps some regulators that the technology is real in the hands of a company like Facebook and its partners. I mean, this, the association is not owned by Facebook, as I understand it, but effectively more of an open source project. You know, the ability to provide financial services to uh, a large number, you know, billions of people at scale, you know, is really representative of the fact that the technology is an enabler and can have, you know, significant effects on society and financial markets over time. And so I think, if anything, it's probably a catalyst for more of this dialogue between regulators and the industry to occur. I mean, look, I think regulations is a, is a good thing. If we want this asset class to scale, if we want to realize the full benefit of the technology, like any other technology that powers financial services, it has to be done within a regulatorily compliant uh, wrapper, full stop. So I know there are you know, aspects of the ecosystem that probably think differently, but you know, if this is the catalytic event that forces the type of discussion and perhaps an acceleration around 
the role of government and regulation in the space, I think it's it's probably a, a constructive dialogue to have, you know, with the caveats that these things take a long time, there can be a lot of uncertainty, but certainly it feels like we've arrived at a moment where this will be a, a point of focus for the next couple of years. And so this is going to be a little bit of a, uh, a kind of a funny question, but, you know, with your background and, you know, again, nothing on base layer is investment advice, so I'm not asking for investment advice. Um, but with your background coming from traditional finance and with your, you know, understanding of things like probabilities and with sensitivity analysis and scenario analysis, I've heard from the family office world coming from that world, there are some that are naysayers that say, you know, Bitcoin is a scam. They kind of believe in the, the Buffett narrative of having no intrinsic value. And they say that it's going to go to zero. Now, again, I'm not asking for price predictions. We don't believe in that at ARCA. And uh, anyone who's trying to do that, I think it's proven out to not necessarily be a, a fruitful endeavor. But, you know, do you see in a world, you know, with the kind of demand that you're starting to see right now, do you see Bitcoin having any probabilities right now? Obviously, there is some probability. There's always probability. But do you see a lower probability or a higher probability of that actually being true? I think over time, so that I agree with you that you know, I don't make predictions either. I mean, you know, there is a, a greater than zero probability, I guess, that, that it could go to zero. And I guess there's, we could debate that with others for hours in terms of what, what potentially could cause that. But I think, you know, the more activity on the network, the more venture funding coming into the space to find, you know, use cases and other types of utility around the Bitcoin blockchain or other uh, distributed ledgers, I think over time, decreases the probability of an event like that. But having said that, I mean, I, you know, the people we talk to have very different ways to think about this. Some people are thinking at it in terms of asset allocation. Others are thinking about it more from a venture standpoint, somewhat idiosyncratic risk. And so what I would say, um, having been an investor in a lot of fintech companies, you know, you invest in a seed stage company, there's some probability that it goes to zero. I mean, you're never fully out of the woods from a risk standpoint, and every investor is going to have to make their own determination about what risk they're comfortable with or not. But again, I do think 10 years on, people would probably say there have been some near-death experiences for the Bitcoin blockchain, but, you know, in its own way, continues to gain in strength and momentum. And I think those are generally net positive in terms of risk reduction over time. I agree. And so getting to the top of the hour, this has been a great conversation with Tom, but as anyone who listens to the show knows that we like to spend a little time getting to know our guests from more of a personal standpoint. And as I've said time and time again, we typically put two inputs into our brain every day, what we read and what we listen to. I find music is a really good telling uh, kind of property of someone's personality. Uh, we've had people that have come on that surprised me and said that they listened to metal and some that listen to classical music and some that listen to their native Polish music. Um, people have obviously been very well read in crypto and outside of crypto. And so reading about the history of money and reading about uh, computer science and cryptography. And so we'd love to hear from you what kind of what you've read recently that really resonated, either crypto or non-crypto related. Um, and also, what kind of music you listen to? Sure. So I just read Bitcoin Billionaires, of course. Great weekend read, beach read. Ben Mesrich is a great author. I've read a number of his books. Highly recommend that. But that's pretty obvious. Uh, a book I'm reading now, which I'm really enjoying, is called Range by David Epstein. And I think this is probably the mirror image to the book that um, Malcolm Gladwell wrote about how 10,000 hours of specialization makes you an expert in something. 
uh, what David basically posits is that in an increasingly diverse world, you know, being a really strong generalist uh, in some ways is more important than being a specialist and cites examples about uh, where that's been the case. And so it's kind of a fascinating read if, if kind of that's your, that's your thing. And that's certainly like a personal philosophy that I've always subscribed to. So it's nice to see a little bit of validation reading that book. And then from a music standpoint, I, um, I'm actually going to plug my son's band, The New Pollution. He's in college. He's uh, he's pretty prolific. Uh, it's sort of like a mashup of LCD Sound System, David Bowie, and Beck. I think he's on Bandcamp and SoundCloud, whatever. But um, done in our garage, so take that with a grain of salt. But but actually, I'm a big fan of uh, Americana music, so it's sort of like country music that isn't top 40 and overproduced. And there's an interesting artist called Ian No, who I think is from North Carolina, and he's got an album called Between the Country, and it's... Uh, it's uh, it's quite good for folks that are sort of into that into that genre or willing to try something new. Wow, I love it! And uh, everyone, check out Tom's son's band because that sounds. <laughs> I love. I'm a big Bowie guy, and so uh, if he's got some of that, I would definitely check that out. Um, and so, lastly, the other thing that we like to do with our guests on the show: where can people find out more about Fidelity Digital Assets? How can they reach out to you and your team? Give them a little bit of insight there, and uh, that will be about it. Yep. So you can find us at fidelitydigitalassets.com. We also have a great Twitter handle at Digital Assets. And uh, that's how you can find us. Amazing. Again, this was Tom Jessup, the head of Fidelity Digital Assets. This was a great conversation with a team that have built a product that was so sorely needed in this industry, in this space. And uh, we were really all very happy when this came about. Tom, thank you for the work you've been doing there. And thank you to your team that uh, have been working hard to get this, uh, the system and platform up uh, to the market. And we'll be hopefully catching up with you in a few months. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, David. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash baselayer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Baselayer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.